for the thousands in attendance and the millions watching around the world. Ladies and gentlemen, let's get ready to rumble! Welcome to the One Broken Cog Podcast. Join John and Brian as they share small adjustments that lead to major impacts. One Broken Cog back at it again. I, of course, am Brian Olson, and my guest today is a thought leader in music streaming and artist development as he's developed rock bands from the garage to platinum-selling artists, and he is none other than Todd McCarty. Now, Todd credits driving a cab with getting his music business career off the ground. In 1998, while listening to music between fairs, he plotted his future one cab driver confessional at a time. Now, he's been a drummer, a tour manager, label executive, and a VP of sales for major label Sony Music. Now, while serving as GM and head of sales at Fearless Records for 13 years, he was awarded several platinum and gold sales awards. Now, Todd released over 200 cover songs on the Punk Goes compilation, which has been streamed over a billion times. Recently, he started Band Builder Academy, the premier online academy for independent musicians, where he shares his artist development process and teaches musicians to build their bands from opening act to headlining act. Todd, welcome to the show. Hey, Brian. Thanks for having me, man. I'm excited. This is uh, kind of the first time I've done an interview with another sales professional, so I'm looking forward to it. Hey, man, from one BS artist to the next. No, I'm kidding with you. <laughs> <laughs> there you no, go. I'm just kidding. So Always Todd, be closing. Oh, yeah, man. Oh, yeah, my partner was, is adamantly against that, but I don't think he understands the nuance of that term. But uh, <laughs> so, Todd, you are a punk rock guy. And I know the legends of punk are bands like, you know, the Ramones, the Sex Pistols, the Clash. I mean, you know, New York Dolls, Black Flag, and the Misfits. Now, do you consider Green Day and Blink-182 punk? I know this has been heavily debated. Oh, yeah, that's a tough one. <laughs> um, it depends on which generation I'm, I'm talking to. <laughs> um, but I, I do because, um, you know, I followed Green Day from before they were popular and they, they came up in a very uh cool like community of, of punk people in san francisco bay and uh you know they were they came up in in the real punk rock world you know and they it's a it's a legit thing blink 182 is a you know california flavor of punk which uh you know some people kind of discount but um it's real man it's so i think uh i think i put them in the punk category for sure there you go. You heard it here first. They are officially punk. Now, Todd, what got you started in the music business? What was that spark that led to you pursuing your dream of making it in music? I'm one of those lucky people that never had to make a tough career decision or whatever. I, I wanted to be in the music industry or to be a drummer and be a musician from a very young age, you know, maybe like seven or eight beating on, you know, like I would take those old oatmeal, um, cylinder boxes and beat on those as a drum set when I was a kid. So um, I got in, I like, I like going to parades and hearing the the drum lines and the marching bands. And um, so I've always liked music and it was sort of a one track mind from a very young age. Um, I, you know, I was put pressing my own vinyl records and releasing music, I think when I was 14 or 15 years old. Um, so I've been in, the, been in the music industry and playing with my friends and bands since yeah, 13, 14 years old. Now, was it always punk rock or was it different genres in the beginning? It started as like classic rock and metal and, um, you know, doing Metallica covers and 
Boston and ACDC. I know you're an ACDC fan, but Definitely. that whole black, black and Black album was how I taught myself how to play drums because the drums were so easy in those songs. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it started as that. And then uh, I lived in Washington, D.C., which had a very rich um, punk rock history with uh, Discord Records and bands like Minor Threat and Fugazi and this very DIY punk rock ethic where they had their own record label and they, they didn't wait for the major label system to come in and help them out. They just did everything themselves. So I was sort of locked in to not just punk rock or hardcore music, but DC punk rock. And, and remember this is before the internet and all of that. So it was a much smaller world. And I really didn't even look beyond like DC, like a little bit into Philadelphia and New York I, California was a mystery to me. Like I, it seems such a faraway place. So I was only listening to DC, DC punk, punk music. And there was enough great music going on in that scene that I didn't need to look much further. So that's how I think my uh, music influences is unique. It was very regional. It's awesome. And I know that you were a cab driver and that led to your start in music. I'd love to hear how that happened. Yeah, that came a little later. Um, I think it sounds pretty good in the bio, but there's some there's some missing <laughs> pieces there. Um, so, like I like I said, I was playing music in bands. Um, I moved to Florida in high school and was active down in the Florida music scene as well, doing bands. But it started with my own bands, and I was booking the tours, doing all of the PR, um, you know, doing the marketing for the shows. And this is also sort of pre-internet or early internet days. Um, when you still had to do a lot of hand-to-hand guerrilla marketing. Um, like I said, I was pressing the records, booking the tours. So um, I was our own tour manager. And after my band uh, wasn't so successful, I took some jobs as a tour manager. And that's how I sort of, I was already doing that. But there was, there was a point where before that, uh, after college, I was a history major in college, and I wasn't going to put that to use. I always, like I said, I always knew I wanted to do music. And so when I got out of college, I uh, was playing in bands and needed a, a job where I could just quit, you know, like, and, or go, go on the road for two months with my band. I was actively a touring musician at this point. And a cab driver was something I was always curious about doing and interesting living in, you know, suburbia and, you know, wanting to break up the monotony of, of living in, you know, an easy, safe place in Orlando, Florida, the cab driver seemed exciting to me. And it also allowed me to drive once every 60 days and still keep my, my, my cab license. So I could go on tour and then come back and have a job. So that was great. And I did that for a year and it taught me how to talk to everybody, talk to people. It really, uh, which is a good, it's good for salespeople to have that ability. And, um, I, you know, you would talk with poor people, uh, you know, rich people, famous people, drug addicts, um, you know, every, everything in between and just regular normal people going to the airport, you know. So I really got a good education driving that cab and had plenty of time to think about, think about things. But then one day, um, my college professor, like my favorite college professor, and I was one of his star students. I picked him up from like a, an outpatient thing at a medical clinic. And he was like, Todd, what, what the hell are you doing driving a cab? I thought you'd be going, you know, getting your master's degree or something. And uh, I told him, you know, no, no, I, I, we had a laugh about it. 
but um you know i that uh that experience really prepared me for my career and the next thing i did after so many you know family members and ex-girlfriends saying you know what are you doing with your life you know why are you driving a cab i you know i i succumbed to that pressure and i went and i got a real job and that real job was doing sales for a publicly traded company doing like telecom sales um, to small and medium-sized businesses and wow. some large businesses too and uh so i took that job which was a nice six-figure good income high high pressure sales situation where we were cold calling three days a week and then two days out on the road uh, book you know going to those appointments that we set on the phone and you know was officially trained as a sales guy and that was just a great experience, something I didn't think I would like, but I ended up liking it. Um, but after a while, I was like, if I'm going to do this, I don't want to sell telecom. I want to sell music. And so that led me to just go and cold call record labels. <laughs> I cold call every <laughs> record label and got jobs with like 20 different record labels. I was you know, selling their music into independent record stores and helping them expand their distribution for their CDs and vinyl. And, and um, yeah, so I just put those sales skills to work in the music industry. And after a while, you know, the phone just was ringing for me. I was getting referred to a bunch of other record labels. So I had a really big list of clients that I was working for as a freelancer. Um, so I guess that was my first, other than starting my own band and being a musician, that was my first entrepreneurial thing was, you know, freelance sales for record labels. It's awesome. I love how everything came together. I mean, the taxi cab, you learned how to talk to people. Obviously, you had a passion for music and then merging the two into the sales arena, you were very, very successful. Now, I remember back in the day watching Taxi Cab Confessions on HBO religiously. Kind of reminded me of that when I read that you were a cab driver. I bet you have some crazy stories from those days. I definitely do. <laughs> I mean, there was <laughs> this is why I only did it for a year because it was kind of a dangerous job. I mean, um, I got mugged three times, twi twice, two of those three times were at gunpoint. The other one was just the guy jumped right up in front. We didn't, we didn't have those screens and just started beating, you know, punching me. And I'd never really been, I had grew up with three older brothers, so I'd been punched, but, but not attacked like that. It was, it was pretty, pretty crazy, you know, and then it, the, the fight, you know, ensued out the, um, out of the car, but my leg was still caught in the car as I'm trying to fight this guy off. And I slammed my door on him and then I hit the accelerator and there was like a big ditch uh, between the parking lot and the road. And I, I, you know, I just accelerated and the car went forward at, you know, full speed. It was a V8, a big, you know, V8 car and just finally drove away with this guy hanging on as long as he could <laughs> you know so things like that but i mean the other the ultimate end of the cab career was crazy i mean i was somehow implicated in like a a drug bust the, the cab the fare that i picked up was a drug dealer and i dropped him off at a hotel in downtown and literally like 40 swat and police teams swarmed the the, the taxi cab and pulled pulled me out and put me on the ground and you know um, obviously I was innocent I had no idea but they pulled me into the station and questioned me about that and the the officers just like man what are you doing with your life he was like you could have easily been wrapped up in this you're t I know you're innocent you know you're free to go but you need to think about you know what you're doing and how this could 
you know, accidentally screw up your career. So I took that to heart and, you know, and, you know, that, that was part of the way it ended, but it was a dangerous job, even in Orlando, Florida, but it was also exciting. I, I mean, I had, I had, um, like the famous gangster rapper Bushwick Bill from the ghetto boys. Oh yeah. <laughs> he gave me a $200 tip. Nice. Um, I had the campaign manager, uh, for Bill Clinton at the time. And he was in Orlando going to the airport and, and he was really fascinating to talk to, but then so were the, the senior citizens that I picked up or, you know, you know, the, the, uh, the, the strippers, you know, in a, in a, in a cab, this goes back to the cash, uh, cab driver confessional issues, but at 2 AM in Orlando, all the strip clubs close. So, you know, you pick, you just put, pull up to the cab and the bouncers escort the girls into the car and, and you're like their protection, you know, from the creepy guys <laughs> hanging out outside of the thing. And you, you know, you take them home or whatever, but you know, you, those, those people had stories to tell. So it was it was a really interesting job, and I think it definitely um, played into, um, yeah, somehow played a, played a role in my in my career. No, definitely, definitely. Now, back in your time, how were bands discovered and signed? I know it's much different today, but how was it back then? Yeah, there's a joke now uh, with people that have been in the music industry a long time. Is is in the old days, you used to have to put a band on the road for three years before you knew if anybody liked them or not. If you right. knew you you signed a good band. Um, but nowadays you can know in 15 seconds, you know, like you can just look at the comments and look at the, the fan reactions on, on, on YouTube or, or social media. But yeah, in the old days, there was a lot of uh, talking to night nightclub managers were like a primary source because they saw live music three, four nights a week. They saw the crowd reactions. They saw the merch sales. So they were good points of contact. Um, to find new talent lawyers, because a lot of people used to just call lawyers to um, say, Hey, help me get my band signed. And then going to the club ourselves and, um, you know, checking out talent and, or inviting them to showcase for the label. Um, those were, those were ways that we used to do it um, just word of mouth. And, and really you had to really hunt physically hunt for, for a good talent and listen to a lot of tapes, demo tapes and all that. But uh, yeah, now it's just, um, how many TikTok, you know, followers do you have? How many streams do you have on Spotify? You're What's right. your social media following? Is it fake? Like you can tell pretty quickly um, who's faking it and who's not just by reading the comments and if there's even comments. So that's, uh, it, it makes it a lot easier. Yeah, I think signing the artist and finding the talent is the easy part now. That's great. It's great. Now, I've always wanted to know, how are punk rock groupies in comparison to other groupies? I, I have to know this. Jeez, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I don't want to say they don't exist, but to, to the credit of punk rock, um, you know, it, it was a place where everybody was accepted and everybody could be themselves. And, and um, you know, th there in certain scenes, there was a sort of chauvinistic, you know, like this is all about moshing and, and aggression and stuff but in the circles that i was in it was very respectful so there was respect for for females and and all of that and the groupie thing really wasn't too much of an issue and if it was it was more just um you know an innocent girl thinking the boys are cute wanting to get to know them and it wasn't they weren't used as uh you know in in a sense like the the classic 
classic rock groupies of the of the 80s or something okay nice now i know you were in sales you did a fantastic job how did you land the spot as vp of sales for sony music right so when i had those 20 record labels as clients uh, one of them was fearless records and uh they liked my work and needed a sales guy um, so they i was living in washington dc at the time and they, i moved to california to work for them and uh after i don't know 18 months being the head of sales for fearless records i became the general manager of the label and um, that was a punk rock label at the time i mean they had uh, at the drive-in was probably the most well-known band that they had and they they uh they, they, the biggest hit they had ever had had maybe sold 100,000 records, which is not much in the big scheme of things. But about four years into my time at Fearless, we had a number one hit, you know, in 14 countries. It was a, by an artist called Plain White Tees. Oh, yeah. Uh, and the song was Hey There, Delilah. And they started as like a pop punk band, like, you know, a Jimmy Eat World type, type band. But the 13th song on their album that we released was an acoustic song that Hey There Delilah. And that was a magical song that just took on a life of its own. And it was on this little California punk rock label, Fearless Records. And we didn't know what to do with a global hit. I mean, it was number one airplay and sales everywhere, almost every country on iTunes. And it went, went platinum and multi-platinum in like over 10 countries. And we didn't even have global distribution at the time. So we had to build all of that and really learn the, the real music business from the, you know, the highest level in a short period of time. And, and that was a great education for me. Um, and from there, we took that label and we repeated those successes and it seemed like every year had a new platinum record. You know? So it was just a really exciting time from about 2007 to when I left in 2015, 2016. And we, we uh, sold that company from a position of strength. It was just growing and growing. And um, I was in sales, but I never thought I'd have to sell a company. And that was really <laughs> interesting too. Um, but uh, yeah, so we, uh, I stayed, after we sold to the new company, I stayed for a little bit but I wasn't happy with the, the corporate culture, the, the, the Beverly Hills, big time, major label. Um, it, this wasn't, it wasn't actually a major label, it was a, a large independent that bought us, but it was a very stiff corporate thing. And I, at that point was like, I, I need to find something that makes me happy and that I get energy from. Um, and I actually had a, a, a young child at this time. I think my daughter was three or four at this time. So I was thinking, you know, how can I spend more time with my family? Um, I'm driving, you know, an hour and a half each way to work and traffic in LA every day. Um, so I started thinking about what I wanted to do. Um, in the meantime, Sony uh, recruited me. They, I think they were attracted to my artist development and able to take a band from nothing and, and build it. And they, their rock division needed help. They were good at taking, let's say if on a scale to one to hundred, they say the indies are good at getting things from one to 20. but the majors are great from getting things from like 20 to a hundred or, or even beyond. So they, they didn't, they needed me for those skills and develop and developing artists. So I was hired by them as a senior vice president of sales and worked in the rock division there. And it was great. I love the people. I love the music. 
but but in my heart of hearts i still i still wanted to do something different i was thinking what can what can work with my family and i didn't want to i didn't like that commute so i wanted to be you know a solopreneur you know doing something from a laptop and internet internet connection um i'm married to a japanese lady and there was an interest to you know possibly move to japan so that we could get our daughter bilingual and bicultural uh in, in japan um and i started thinking about that and how to do it and uh that's what you know that's what led me to japan i live in japan now and uh, i've been here for almost four years and wow. have my have my company so sony was about a year and a half just sort of interruption in my in my in my journey um and it was a great one and it was cool because when i quit sony i was prepared just to quit and move pack pack up and move to japan but they kept me on like they offered you know to keep me on as a consultant which at a lower rate but it was still nice because i i was expecting to have zero income and it really helped sort of provide a landing strip after moving to japan so i recommend anybody that is looking out there to to quit their day job and to make a change for themselves try to see if you can get that um that sort of stay on as a consultant deal if you can it's it was great that sounds amazing. So basically, the results you generated for or achieved for Fearless Records led you to Sony. Now, at Fearless, before you left, I know you were there for 13 years, and you were awarded several platinum and gold sales awards. I mean, you did an amazing job there. Did you have influence on what artists were signed, and did you work with the artists, or was it mainly in a sales capacity? I started as a sales guy and, and, and was promoted to general manager. So I was doing sales for maybe... I guess the whole time I was there, um, I was doing some form of sales uh, with Apple and Spotify and the, the bigger physical retailers like like Walmarts and Best Buy and Targets of the world, Amazon. But there was another sales guy under me for like the last six or seven years I was there doing the digital sales. But I was managing a team of 20 people. Or Before that, you know, we started, I was at like, there was five, but once we had that big hit, we grew the company. So my my duties were managing staff, managing the the budgets, working with our finance guy, and you know ex expanding our global distribution and hiring people, but also handling the major accounts like Walmart, Best Buy, Target, Amazon. Yeah, so I I think uh, sorry I lost track of your question, but I that is uh, that's what my duties were. Nice, nice. So in, in a larger label like Sony. Do artists have control or creative control, or do like the talking heads, the corporate heads dictate, you know, bring in writers, or do they dictate album covers and a lot of creative aspects? Do, do the artists really have control of the art that they produce? Ah, right. Okay. Uh, I'm sort of backing up to your last question. I didn't get too involved in the signings, um, except from a legal standpoint, but uh, the creative and making the records, that, that was the... A&R and the president of the label, their focus was the creative and getting working with the artists, uh, making the records. Mine was selling, to clarify that, and managing the staff. And then to answer your question about how it is at, at Sony, my personal opinion is they get a little bit too lost in the weeds with the corporate red tape. And um, I was a sales guy, but the, the, I, I was very close with the A&R, the guys that were working with the artists, and they felt the same, that there was too many, you know, too much time spent on corporate calls telling us how to behave or, you know, um, 
you know, filling out our TPC reports or expense reports and all these like <laughs> right. this paperwork stuff and this training and all of this nonsense that would slow down my sales ability or process or slow down the creative A&R process. So I, I think the, but, but there, there, there is historically, there is, um, there is, there is definitely like where the A&R, the creative and the, and the label would go after a hit and force musicians to work with certain writers or take them out of their comfort zone to where they're just not happy. There was a lot of that. I worked at a punk label and there wasn't, there wasn't much of that at all. So I don't have a lot of experience with that. At the majors, I was working in the rock division. Rock musicians tend to write most of their music anyway. They're not using a ton of producers and co-writers. They are, but it's, it's not like in pop music or um, you know, maybe hip hop or other genres where it's heavily about who else is making the music with you, what other producer or what other featured artist who you're gonna get to collaborate with. Or, or just flat out, you not writing the music and having some Nashville songwriter write write the music. It wasn't too much like that in rock, so I didn't experience any of any of that. But um, I, I think it probably still exists, but not in the classic sense or like the '80s, '90s, early O's sense of of that. I think there's a lot more flexibility and creative control from artists. Artists have more leverage these days because many of them who arrive at major labels now have are they're there because they've already had success when they weren't on a major like either they they've had success on their own as a diy self-releasing artist or they already have a a business because they're an influencer on tiktok or a social media platform you know or they're you know they're somehow they already have a business so there's the, the labels have less leverage and I think that that's more common now. And it used to be the, the labels had so much power and control. They controlled the, the pipelines for promotion. They controlled the talent pool, everything. And, and it's just not like that anymore. Yeah, You always hear stories about that where the record executives will come in and say, hey, I don't like the album cover. I don't like the album title. I don't like your lead single selection. You know, and they have a, an agenda and they really stick their hand into the creative pot. And it really obviously disrupts the artistic process. So that's definitely a pain. And I know in the corporate world, they kind of did that to you in a way, right? They took away your passion to sell and they kind of put roadblocks up in terms of you managing your team and hitting your, your goals. Right. But, you know, I'm so fascinated by the music business. It's so unique. Right. And I'd love to know what does it take to be successful in sales? And as a GM in the music business, you know, what do you attribute your success to? I'm glad you asked that question, Brian, because uh, I was thinking about that you know, excited to talk from one sales guy to another. But one of the, the the fascinating things about music is I did hardcore sales where it was, you know, like a fun, you know, my funnel and having a quota every month and really having to find out, talk through objections and 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 turn people's no into a yes. And with music, it's just not like that. I mean, when when that song, Hey There Delilah by Plain White Tees, you know, sold millions of tracks. It wasn't because we can, had to convince anybody. It was just magic. I mean, it really was. It was, it was just the case of a really good song, uh, like a Beatles-inspired classic songwriting, mixed with like this unrequited love song that that touched all ages. You know, from young people 
all the way into senior citizens is sort of like how Adele or some of the, like, like the current song that's number one right now in the States driver's license. That's like just a song that anybody can listen to. And there's nothing a sales guy can really do to hurt it or help it at that point. So it's a soft sell. And, um, I think the, the difference uh, was when you're when you're in other types of, like other types of B two B sales, you know there there really is competition. You're you're worried about what the other competing sales company, you know, salesperson at another company is doing, or you're having to be competitive uh, with music. It's all about just the relationship. So, a music sales guy, his role is not to convince anybody that one song is better than the next because the people get to vote now with their streams and thumbs and hearts, you know, like the people get to decide what the, what music is good and what isn't, you know, Apple and Spotify and Google and Amazon, they, they, they just react, you know, but what, what the trick is, is being in the right places, you know, like, so the big, the big sales accounts in music are those that, that I just mentioned, Apple, Spotify, Amazon and, and, and the like. So you got to be where they are and where those curators, you know, uh, Spotify has over a hundred curators that are sort of like the gatekeepers and Apple's got another 20 and you've got to be in the places where those people are. You've got to be, you know, at the, there's no conventions going on right now, but you've got to be there. You've got to be at the shows that they're at. Um, you just have to network with them and become their friends basically. So it all comes down to those relationships and the sell is soft. There's, there's no selling these people. Like it's just conversations and, you know, clever, they want to hear a clever story, a clever marketing plan, but they also, if they don't like you, it doesn't matter. So really it's like 80% relationship building and friendship and 20%, you know, telling them the story or the marketing points. So it's really a different type of sell. That's awesome. I love to hear it. How do you think streaming has really impacted the industry? Have labels adjusted and are bands surviving financially? What do you think? I think it's a, a, an evolution. And I, I really wasn't a believer in the early days that streaming could ever be what it is now. So I was definitely wrong on the fact that, I mean, the music business now is having their best years ever, their biggest growth ever, most profit ever because there's less overhead. Um, smaller staff, no physical distribution and, and, and expensive manufacturing. Um, everything is digital. So the profits are higher. The, the, the consumption is higher. Um, so, but the economics have not, like always, nothing's changed in the music industry where the, the economics have certainly not worked for everybody. But there's a lot, I think, being done to, to put that out in the open and address it. And, and, and there, there's a, there's a, so there's a lot of music rights challenges and the publishing business was built, you know, a hundred years ago. The label business was built, you know, 80 years ago. And, and, and these businesses are having a hard time adjusting to the new economics. And the, the, historically, the artists have always got the short end of the stick. So they're trying to, you know, change that. Uh, but it's like, it's got a long way to go. And I also think that it's an industry that even within, like on the artist side, even with, with that, like it sort of works for the top 10% of artists or the top 5% of artists. 
the the economics actually work pretty well for them um but for the lower half of of musicians our lower majority of musicians the economics just don't work it's it's really a tough way to make a living and most people fail at it and if you do succeed count yourself lucky among amongst the very few percentage of musicians that can actually make a living doing it so it's very tough business no, absolutely. And I was going to ask you how things change in terms of how artists are actually making money today. As an example, I've heard that you know bands now have to pay venues to play. Like down here in Hollywood, there's the Troubadour and the Whiskey and the, you know the Roxy and, and clubs like that. And you actually have to pay to get in now instead of them paying you. And I know bands are making money off of touring, YouTube ad revenue, merchandise sales, but they're not making money off album sales. What do you think? How have things changed in terms of how they're making money now? Yeah, I mean it's been a tough a tough twelve months for for music venues and artists that rely on not just the ticket sales, but they sell a lot of merchandise at those, um, those venues. And the labels generally are not taking any cut on the venue sale, like the ticket sales and the merch sales. And since artists are not making very good money from their record sales, the venues and those shows, those concerts are their lifeblood. Right. So it's been very difficult. Live streaming has not, been you know even close to helping helping artists uh you know it's been a little bit but a drop in the bucket compared to what they were making from their live business so hopefully that's going to come back but meanwhile the the one good good thing in in the pandemic that that musicians have learned is where else what other revenue streams can they open up and of course the live streaming one was was one option but the tipping culture and having researched this Tipping culture is actually a huge percentage of how Chinese artists, musicians make their money. Because in China, the value of a stream or a music, like there's a black market on music, so they don't make any money. I mean, it's like in America, it's like, you know, a half of a percent. Uh, I mean, sorry, a half a percent of a, of a penny is like the per stream royalty. But in China, it's like, 40 times less valuable than that. So there's no money to be made. So what, how they make their money is from ticket sales, merchandise, and actually like, I read some statistic on an, an article about it, that it was like 30% or more is coming from tipping. So like with their Chinese social media apps, which we don't have here, but they have tipping built right into the app. So it's connected to your bank account somehow. And it's very common for people just to send digital gifts of money or, you know, they can send digital flowers, but they have to pay like $5 as a donation or something. And that's how artists are making money. So it's, it's on Instagram and Facebook and TikTok. And like there, there is tipping in the video game platform. Uh, sorry, I'm blanking on the name of the big video game platform that, that has tipping, but it's on these social media companies to sort of, help creators and build that into the platform. And I think that is the next revenue stream for musicians is the tipping culture and, and monetizing directly from social media. I think that's probably the, the one I can put my finger on. The other area is sync. So like film, TV, video, getting like your music and video games or on documentaries or even in advertisements, that business is rapidly evolving to where it's becoming easier for brands and companies to license music. Whereas traditionally it's been very, it's still very difficult to license songs. 
but now it's getting easier through these sort of one-stop subscription services where you can, you know, pay a monthly or annual subscription and get use of, of all this cop, uh, copyright free music. Uh, but the artists still get paid from that and they get exposure. So that's another revenue stream that I think is going to become crucial and, and more open to not just the top 5% of musicians, but it's going to help the longer tail, like all, all musicians, I think in the future. That's great. Um, so I love that, it. It's great to hear. Those are, those are some revenue streams that I'd be looking out for as a, as a self-releasing or independent artist. Awesome. Awesome. Now your latest venture is band builder Academy. We'd love to learn more about it. And of course, we'd love to hear about when the idea first came up. Yeah, that the idea came up um, when I was sort of after the sale of fearless records and uh, sort of deciding, you know, doing some soul searching about what I wanted to do. And it was clear I wanted to, you know, not have a commute and work from home, uh, enjoy my family. And it was clear that I wanted to stay in music. And, but, but I asked myself, well, what do I really like about my job? And it was working with the new developing artists that are, you know, learning the business. And as a busy sales guy and busy label manager, I didn't have a lot of time to stop and do that education work. A lot of these artists came through the door their first day unprepared for the music industry. And we didn't have a lot of time to stop and educate them and their team, their manager, their, you know, their, their, the, the business side of their, of their business. Like they just didn't have a lot of education. And I wish I could have stopped and done that. So that's the goal and the mission for Band Builder Academy is to give these artists the real education of the music industry, how to build a business that, that works. And there's so much bad information for them on a Google search or from people that are not just not qualified that haven't, you know, been in the music industry teaching this stuff to musicians. There's a lot of bad information. So I, um, I made band builder to prepare self-releasing and independent artists grow their business on their own so that it's attractive enough to attract partners, whether they want to attract, you know, just a, a manager to join their team and help them enhance their business or a booking agent or even a record label or a music publisher or somebody that can help them get their music into, you know, TV, film and commercial syncs and, and make money that way. You know, it's just so they can really grow their business the right way. And uh, so I, uh, I created a system. It's just step-by-step step for musicians looking to, you know, make, make a living in the music industry. And it has everything. They take all of my knowledge from sales and artist development, marketing, branding, all of that. And I, and I put it into 60, 70 hours of video coursework that they can take, as well as like, there's lots of video lessons that don't include video. It's just like step-by-step -step worksheets and quick win type things where they can you know, just sit down in one day and figure out how to get more followers or how to, you know, work on their, you know, their social media promotion for a day and, and, and get some results. So I have all of that in there. Plus I have a community and it's, um, that's sort of where the magic is, you know, that the community is just all the musicians sharing their struggles or tips, or somebody has a problem with their distributor. And another person says, Oh, I had that same problem. So there's lots of that. It becomes like a support 
a support mechanism for for musicians as well. And um, for me, it's just been awesome because I get to stay very active in a part of the music industry that I love, which is artist development. And um, you know, my, I guess my favorite part of the day is talking with the musicians in the community. No, definitely. It's so great that you're doing this. I mean, you see such a rise in independent artists because, of course, they want to take that creative control back from major labels and, of course, cut out the middleman and keep all the profits for themselves. But the downside is they don't have that guidance and support of a major label or any type of record label or record executive. And, of course, you're filling that void. You are that person guiding them and allowing them to be more successful a lot faster instead of learning from, from you know devastating career-ending mistakes. You're there to kind of guide them to the right path. So I really love that. Todd, it's been awesome. Any last words of wisdom or anything you'd like to share with the audience before we wrap up? No, I, I think just, um, I just think for, I guess for anybody that is looking to, you know, make a living from their passion, just don't be afraid to quit what you're doing, have faith in yourself and, um, and just go at it. The, the worst thing that can happen is not as bad as you think. And, and uh, just go out there and, and do it and believe in yourself. That's, that would be my advice. Awesome, Ty. Love it. Now, one last question. It's just a, a personal question just to get to know you just a little bit better. So you and your wife and your daughter, you know, you're going to retire to a beautiful island all by yourself. You can only bring one book, one album, and one movie. What would they be? Well, Im- immediately, the, the movie one is pretty easy. I, I mentioned I was a history major and... My favorite movie is Dr. Zhivago. It's an old classic there about, you go. about Russia. So that would be the movie. I could watch that movie over and over. It's like three hours long too. So it'd be good. Good <laughs> distraction. Jeez. Music. That's such a, that's such a tough one. Yeah. I, I could come up with a hundred answers for that. I don't think I could narrow it to one album, but maybe if I'm on an island, I just get some like nice ukulele Hawaiian music <laughs> just to suit the mood. Uh, and a book. Yeah, probably uh, Catcher in the Rye. I just love that book. Just literature, good old, good old literature. Nice, Todd. It's been wonderful. How do people get in touch with you? Learn more and connect with you. You can find me on uh, my website, bandbuilderacademy.com, or just email me, Todd at bandbuilderacademy.com. I do use uh, mostly Instagram and Facebook. And uh, my handle on there is a little different. It's Heat on the Street, which is a blog that I run. It's a free advice blog for musicians. So, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty easy to find. Sounds good, Todd. Appreciate it. It's been great. Have a wonderful rest of the day. And, uh, hey, keep up the good work. Yeah, thanks again, Brian. I enjoyed it. Have, yeah, a, good, have a good night. Yeah, you too. Thank you for spending time with us today. We encourage you to join the many businesses that we have helped to achieve their objectives, align their departments, and increase their revenue. You can start by reaching out to us at results at onebrokencog.com. Together, we will make small adjustments that will lead to major impacts to your business, your culture, and your bottom line.